0: Reading from Mr. Ballpoint, Chapter 1. Sometimes you wonder how a thing started. The ballpoint pen, for example. Everybody has one. Nowadays, they're so cheap, they're throwaways like disposable razors. But time was, they were a luxury item, an expensive gift for that white collar executive in your life who was on a rocket ship ride to the top. My name is Jim Reynolds, and seriously, I was trained as an engineer. I should have stuck to that. I really should have, all joking aside. So there I was in May of 1947 standing just outside the Oval Office. Yep, the one that's inside the White House. Where else is there an Oval Office? There's a novel idea. I really wonder if there's another one somewhere. I mean, the president doesn't exactly have a patent on the idea, right? It was amazing to be there for a lot of reasons. Mainly I thought it was impossible because the president must be an incredibly busy guy. And even though the war had been officially over for a while, helping Europe rebuild and keeping a careful eye on the Russians no doubt took up a lot of his time. Even after we had that appointment set with him, I wondered whether we'd be able to meet at all when I read in the paper that the White House was undergoing renovations. They'd moved the Trumans over to Blair House across the street, and I worried that if we were so lucky as to get in front of him, it might be in a hallway somewhere for about a minute. But it turned out that the Oval Office itself was still open for business every day. While work on the residence was going on, Mr. Truman and Bess slept over at Blair House and the Secret Service took him back and forth each day to his office. Anyhow, I was standing there because I was too nervous to sit. And I was there, not because of anything I did, not really, but because of what my father did, or didn't do, or didn't necessarily mean to do. It'll take a while to explain. So seated behind the desk in front of me was Winifred, President Truman's personal secretary. She wasn't much of a looker, but then you wouldn't expect her to be. She was friendly enough, extremely well done up, I should say, but she came across as efficient and no-nonsense. You know he'd have insisted on that if you knew him, which I didn't. I didn't even vote for him later in 48, but that's another story, too. Winifred was one of those iron fist and a velvet glove types. Sweet, sincere smile, but she could cut you like a razor. Truman was running behind on his appointments that day, not a situation I thought she'd have approved of, but I'm sure she managed it well enough with him being about as stubborn as a Missouri mule, or so they said. Didn't make me any more calm about meeting him, that's for sure. How much longer do you think, I asked her. Oh, just a few minutes, she said. He's just signing a bill. A lump came to my throat. I was nervous enough already, but the next thought I had terrified me in all kinds of new ways. There must be a lot of dignitaries in there, including members of Congress. Reporters, too, for sure. Way to fail in front of a crowd. Would he invite any of them to hang around after he asked for us to be shown in? Was there maybe another exit so they wouldn't all stampede through here? If not and they poured out, should I be standing or sitting? Sitting, it seemed to me, would be a good plan, and don't stick your legs out. He wouldn't uh, use a ballpoint to sign anything important, would he? She gave me the oddest look, and just then I realized I hadn't urinated in about four hours. Uh, Ah, you got a restroom, I asked. She gave me one of those silent angled wrist directions which indicated the general route to the toilet. I assumed the Secret Service would be following me, but I didn't mind. You have to do what you have to do. I bet lots of people have got that problem right before they march into the Oval Office. So I was at the urinal about to let fly, and of course that's when you relax whether you want to or not. My mind popped right out of the moment, and I remembered that other time the much more momentous time, at least from my personal viewpoint, when I was doing the same thing right before that other big thing in my life came in on a whirlwind. So it was late May of 1944, and I was at the urinal in the student union at Stanford. Not a worry in the world, mind you. I had all my credits, I was going to graduate. I was a little concerned about what came next, but not overly so. It wasn't a bad feeling at all. I started to let fly, and this guy, Dirk Davis, glided into the stall next to me. Now, I didn't know him. Not really. I did know him by reputation. He was on the football team, which I definitely was not. Not really. I was a cheerleader. And that, too, is another story. But I certainly knew of him, and although he wasn't strictly for a string, he was a force, a force to be reckoned with. That much, I knew. He had those chiseled good looks, you know the kind. He could probably whistle and have anything, was my thought. So as he oh-so-nonchalantly started pissing a rope, he began to chat me up. Hey, he said. Hey, I said back, pretending it was no big deal talking to him in this casual way, even though my stream was barely a trickle at that point. I wasn't the only male cheerleader. It was kind of a tradition. But you never knew what some other guy was going to think about that, especially a guy on the team who maybe thought of cheerleaders in short skirts as some kind of snack you have before the big game. Was that a chuckle? Can it be you don't think much of male cheerleaders? Well, let me tell you, and here I am getting seriously ahead of my story, I got a U.S. president elected because of my cheerleading ability. Bear with me here. It was 1952, after a lot of this story takes place, but not before it ends. I was on the dais at the Republican National Convention at the International Amphitheater in Chicago. It was a foregone conclusion that they would nominate General Dwight D. Eisenhower, the war hero, for their presidential candidate. But the convention was deadlocked on the decision about who his running mate would be. To make matters more interesting, this was going to be the last brokered convention, where even the big deals got negotiated in back rooms. That's because it was the first convention to be televised. And after that, the public had to see for themselves how roll call votes by state determined the outcome. So there I was, an enthusiastic supporter of Ike's, and Here was this big crowd on the floor in front of me with nothing to do because some cigar-chomping poles in the back room were still arguing about the VP nomination. So one of the bigwigs, who knew of my career at Stanford, said, "Lead him in a chair, Jim. So I got up, and for a solid half hour, I roused the crowd in yelling, I like Ike, over and over and over and over again until the deal in the closet got done. In the end, Richard M. Nixon, the senator from California, was nominated from the floor unanimously. And then, of course, he went on not only to serve as VP, but also as president after losing to JFK and then staging an amazing comeback, only to end up resigning as a result of the Watergate scandal. Now think what you want about whether I should have stayed in bed that day in 1952, but I have a letter on White House stationery from Nixon when he was sitting there in the Oval Office where Truman is at the beginning of my story here. Thanking me for making it possible for him to be elected to the highest office in the land. Don't believe me? Watch the movie MacArthur with Gregory Peck. In it, there's a news clip from the convention. Watch very carefully because it's only a second or two and you'll see me leading that cheer. But I digress. Back at the old urinal, I obviously didn't know my own strength. In fact, I was pretty intimidated by the second string fullback. But it gets better. Actually, worse than better. Damn, Dirk said, it feels good. I was thinking he's an animal chatting about his bodily functions, but I wasn't going to say it. You said it, I said. He laughed. Graduation, I mean. Oh, I said, glad that he wasn't rhapsodizing on the joys of taking a leak. Know what I'm going to do, he grinned, looking over at me as if he'd won some kind of sweepstakes. Engineering, I replied, thinking it was as good a guess as any. You bet, he said, I'm going to get a job at Hughes Aircraft and propose to Zelta Burroughs. Panic! Red alert! Battle stations! i voided about half my bladder, but there was no time to lose. I stanched the flow, zipped up, shot him a manful grin, and got out of that restroom in a hurry. I found Zelta in the dining hall bussing tables. She didn't look particularly surprised to see me. Oh, boy, she was beautiful. Zelta, I was breathless. I know we said we'd take our time and not necessarily get serious right away, but will you marry me? I need an answer immediately. I have to say, I did do a good job of selling her. Too good, actually. After that, she was worried I'd turn out to be just like him, my dad, the silver-tongued devil.